Hello and welcome to this Institute for Government Fringe event, Global Britain, What's the Plan? My name's Hannah White, I'm the Deputy Director of the Institute for Government. Today we're going to be exploring all the key questions about how the government should approach the concept of Global Britain. And we're really delighted to have the support today of Imperial College London and the Wellcome Trust to bring this event to you. So now the UK has left the EU, it has an opportunity to redefine its role in the world. But how should this opportunity be used? What kind of trading nation should the UK aspire to be? How should the government be thinking about the UK's international reputation and its priorities outside the EU? In what areas should the UK seek to build coalitions with like-minded countries? And are there opportunities for the UK to become a global leader in any particular areas? Lots of questions and we have a fantastic panel with us to answer them. We have we hope, very shortly, the Right Honourable Greg Hans MP, who is Minister of State for Trade Policy in the Department for International Trade, and he's been MP for Hammersmith and Fulham and then Chelsea and Fulham since 2005. We have Stephen Adams, who is a Senior Director of Global Council, and he has almost 20 years of experience in European and British public policy and regulation, chiefly in the field of trade policy, cross-border financial services policy and European integration. Professor Ian Wormsley became the second provost of Imperial College London in September 2018, and he's also chair in experimental physics at the college. Before joining Imperial, Professor Wormsley served as Pro Vice-Chancellor for Research and Innovation and Hook Professor of Experimental Physics at the University of Oxford. Georgina Wright is a senior researcher on the Brexit team at the Institute for Government, where she focuses on UK engagement and influence in the EU after Brexit. Prior to joining the Institute, she was a research, research associate at Chatham House and has worked for the European Commission and NATO in Brussels. So a few housekeeping points before we begin. A reminder that this event is being held on the record. The IFG will make a video and a pod, audio podcast of it available on our website as soon as possible after we finish today. And our staff will be live tweeting throughout the event from uh, IFG events, um, that's our Twitter handle. And if you would like to uh, tweet and to reference the event, then the, the hashtag to use is IFGCPC20. I'd like to put your panels to the, uh, your questions to the panel as well as my own. So please do start submitting them as soon as you want using the Q&A function that you can see on the screen. And if you would like to, please let us know where you're joining us from around the country. And for those of you who are viewing the conference in our virtual tent, um, if you would like to know more about our work in this area, then please click on the Get In Touch button to submit your details and then we can send you more information. So uh, let's get started. I have some questions I'd like to put to the panel, but as I said, please do submit your questions too. Um, I'm not sure whether Greg Hans has joined us yet. Um, so I think I'll kick off uh, with, with you, Steve. I hope you can hear me. Oh, there he is. He is there. Great. OK, sorry, I had a technical problem. Can you hear me OK? I, I can hear you very well. Fantastic. Um, Excellent. Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us, Minister. Uh, could you kick us off uh, with a very answer to a very general question? How should the UK be approaching its trade deals in terms of its wider foreign policy priorities? Yeah, well, I think the, the read across is uh, is pretty clear. You know, you can see from the first round of negotiations we're doing, notwithstanding the EU negotiation, um, the negotiations for which uh, I and Liz Truss are responsible uh, are with the United States, Japan, Australia and New Zealand. So we're, if you like, kicking off with uh, um, free trade, free market oriented allies 
um, around the world. Uh, and then we are looking as part of our overall uh, Indo-Pacific tilt, um, looking at joining the CPTPP trading group, the Pacific Rim trading group, the Comprehensive and Progressive Trans-Pacific Partnership. And then beyond that, we'll be looking at uh, our trade negotiations uh, with the likes of India, with the Gulf, with Mercosur and so on. So uh, in that sense, trade is a vital, uh, in many ways, the most important part uh, of the overall global Britain agenda. One policy priorities that the UK used to pursue um, as part of the EU. Um, what do you think are, are the differences now that we've left? What will we be able to do differently as a result in terms of foreign policy? Well, I think on, on trade deals, being outside of the EU enables us to uh, go further in areas where it's uh, more purely in the UK national interest. Uh, rather, having spent two years at uh, EU trade uh, fact meetings, trade council meetings, you know, inevitably EU trade policy is uh, always seeking to get the lowest common denominator. Uh, um, and 28 uh, countries uh, will often have uh, a different, sometimes conflicting uh, trade interests. So I think the UK's ability to run our own trade policy means we can go further in areas that suit the UK. And that's exactly what we've just done in the UK-Japan deal, for example. We've gone further on areas like data, on areas like financial services, uh, on, the, um, on the, the movement of professional people. Uh, we've taken that further with Japan um, than the EU um, did before. So it's taking advantage of those opportunities that we would have of having our own independent trade policy now uh, and also leveraging off our, uh, what I would say is our global soft power, leveraging off our global diplomatic network. And the fact that we are spending 0.7% of national income on international development, I think facilitates our trade uh, uh, trade agenda, uh, as does the fact that we uh, you know, are a significant player around the world, whether it be at the uh, one of the five members of the Security Council, the Five Eyes relationship, you know, we've got the Commonwealth. You know, all of these are really, really important aspects of uh, UK influence uh, abroad uh, that obviously we bring to bear in our trade relationship too. Stephen, can I move to you now? Um, just bearing in mind the sorts of uh, ambitions that, that the ministers set out there, what do you think are the key global trends the UK will need to be prepared to navigate from outside the EU? Well, it's certainly the case that the UK has uh, chosen a, a an interesting moment to adopt a, a fully autonomous trade policy in the sense that we find ourselves in a period of intense flux in terms of the global management of international trade. The WTO system has probably never experienced a period of strain like the one it's currently experienced. And I think, you know, we, it, it's obvious to all of us that this is a time of fairly serious geopolitical tension. So that, that in itself is a challenge. We are uh, staking out our stall and setting out an agenda for leadership in a world where leadership has arguably never been more, more difficult. And that means that the UK is gonna have to be very smart about how it goes about trying to shape the work of the WTO or similar organizations like or similar arrangements like uh, the Basel system um, or the ISO uh, or, or any any of the any of the, the standard setting bodies that, that ultimately create the parameters in which international trade uh, happens. Um, I mean I think the point about soft power is clearly an important one and I think that if anything the that the biggest 
the, the, the biggest challenge for the UK is to work out what global Britain means beyond the signing of free trade agreements. And um, if, if we think about free trade agreements as deals, the the, the sort of the, the four years since the referendum has really been very heavily focused on the kinds of deals we can strike. And I think that the next iteration of Global Britain is going to need to be about uh, the bridges, if you like. If deals get negotiated, bridges get built. And the the, the real, it seems to me, in fact, the, the, the real opportunity for the UK in, uh, in, in the post-Brexit period is to think about the ways in which it can engage with international debates on the shaping of standards around frontier technology, whether that's things like AI or internet governance. Um, there's clearly a, a huge uh, shift in the way we use uh, technology to supply and ultimately to trade services. One of the big uh, uh, one, of the, one of the big lessons of the last six months, as many of us, who, those of us who have been fortunate enough to do so, have moved over into working remotely, has been that the potential, in fact, to now create global supply chains um, in services delivered remotely uh, over the internet is 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 enormous, and that's going to change the way we think about what a services supply chain is, and it's a big opportunity for the UK in many respects. But it's one that's going to need very careful thinking, and we're going to need to reflect that in the way we approach not just our free trade agreements, but our um, our, our regulatory diplomacy, our attempts to try and shape the uh, the way in which frameworks for cross-border services delivery evolve over the years ahead. And. What do you think about the, the sort of bigger geopolitical sort of um, sh shifts and battles that are going on at the and, and how the UK can sort of best position itself between these, you know, China, the US, the position of the EU? What's the, the, the what are going to be the challenges there? Well, uh, part of the challenge, of course, is just being outside of the room if the room is the place where uh you know the, the the us and china and the china and the eu and the u the eu and the us ultimately resolve their differences if they are able to um but the reality is that there is nevertheless a role for the uk to play in a world in which those three actors are you know are are um are debating the evolution of the international trade regime the reality is that there's always a market for good ideas in geneva um and that's not really a question of size actually it's often a question much more of who can in, who can insert intelligent ideas into the debate at the right time and my my instinct would be that that's the sort of thing that actually the UK can do very well. Um, it's a, it's not an easy thing to do, but there must be a sense in which the UK can potentially be a form of safe harbour uh, in uh, in a world in which we have rising trade and geopolitical tensions between the big the three big uh, actors in the global economy. Uh, there must be a way in which it can use um, its own free trade agreements and its own unilateral liberalization as a way of essentially creating um, corridors for supply chains that sidestep or work around uh, some of the big tensions uh, in the system. So I don't think it's easy, but I think actually that the, the prospect of, um, of, of carving out a role um, as an actor outside of those three big blocks, but able nevertheless to, um, you know, to, to, to play an influential role is, is quite an interesting one for the UK to be stepping into. Professor Walmsley, Stephen was talking there about some of the sort of the strengths of the UK being, you know, providing some of the good ideas and managing to sort of put those in at the right moment. What what are the strengths that you can see that you think the UK ought to be drawing on when it's sort of defining its new place in the world? Mm. Yeah, it's, it's an important question. I, I think the, the 
if one thinks about the ways in which ideas are generated, then the sort of knowledge ecosystem that the UK supports and is part of globally are going to be an important part of that. Uh, so the the strengths in our research domain uh, clearly have already got very strong global connections and will need to grow and sustain those. And, and those will need to be married to a really vibrant innovation system, uh, which can take the most influential ideas that are currently available for application and drive forward the societal benefits that can, can accrue from those. Uh, and I think that the UK is therefore well positioned. We have a research and higher education sector that is globally recognized that can both attract the best minds to the UK and also send out some of the, the best ideas to address some of the, the current global challenges. So I think that the notion that, that Greg uh, po posited about the ways in which we influence the world can also be driven through the knowledge base that we, we generate here uh, and, uh, and, and apply. And how can government go about best supporting that, that system? Well, I, I think the, some of the ways in which the government is all, already acting, I think, do, do very well. The, the growth to 2.4% of GDP to support research and development is most welcome. That will put us on a trajectory that really uh, matches those of the, the, our, our major international competitors and collaborators. I think that, that's really important. The second is to make sure that the UK is friendly to global collaborations. And again, things like the, uh, the, the visa circumstance that, uh, that uh, the global talent visas are really important in, in that respect. I think as, as the situation changes around the world, in, in China and the US perhaps especially, uh, the, a place which is seen to be a welcoming to global talent and provide a place where people can take risks in in new discovery and new application, I think are going to be really valuable. Thanks very much. Georgie, you've done a lot of thinking about you know, the way that the UK government um, sort of, uh, work within the EU to um, now, now that we've left, still make the most of the opportunities that, you know, that there are um, and and, and, and the way it can go about that. What do you think, you know, within the EU and more broadly, um, is the best way for, for the UK to, the UK government to, to approach this now? Um, yeah, I mean, it's an excellent question. It's also quite nice to come last because it means that some of the great sort of suggestions have already been raised. But I mean, you know, first is kind of acknowledge what the UK already has in terms of like influence and, uh, and what it's able to accomplish on the global stage. So obviously has a hugely extensive diplomatic footprint. Um, it's well known for its thought leadership. So that's across areas, you know, from security to development, to research, um, and obviously, you know, issues like climate change and corruption on all of these um, issues, the UK has something to say um, and is recognised for it. 
Um, obviously, the government has like lots of capabilities, obviously a big aid budget, but also, you know, known for kind of spending a lot on research, cultivating that, um, you know, defence, all of those things. And then is incredibly influential also in international organisations, obviously it's permanency in the UN Security Council, but also in NATO. Um, but I think there are some dangers and those are the dangers we looked into um, in the report is that one, you know, the UK becomes a bit complacent in the sense that it thinks, well, we are quite um, influential on the global stage, so we'll just carry on as is. Um, you know, as has been raised before, uh, Minister and the other panellists, is that, you know, the world is is changing. Um, and so the government really needs to get its messaging right. So we know that the integrated review promises a vision of global Britain that, deliver, that will deliver for the British people. Um, but I also think the government needs to think very carefully about the messaging on how it conveys its messages abroad. So, you know, how are you going to get other countries to listen to your great ideas? Um, so obviously one is having a great idea, but it's also the way that you present that great idea and where you're active, what, um, you know, forums and organisations you prioritise to promote and deliver on those ideas. Um, and then finally, maybe a more IFG take on this is really getting the um, sort of coordination across government right. So, you know, when you're thinking about Global Britain, it's obviously not just the FCDO um, or the Department for International Trade, it's also very much the centre of government and across uh, government departments. So really making sure that ministers know what the government's priorities are and are able to deliver that. And then, of course, in our British embassies and high commissions abroad, that they are also um, in tune with what's going on. Thanks, Georgie. Greg, can I come back to you now? Um, I've, I'm starting to draw on some of the questions we're getting through from the audience, which are really interesting. Um, and the one from uh, Shankar that says, uh, what's our USP when it comes to building a global Britain? What is it now that the government's really wanting to, to sort of put forward as the, as, as the country's unique selling points? Uh, I would say um, uh, our values, our values of uh, free trade, uh, free markets, uh, liberal um, politics, um, democracy, I would say broadly speaking our values, which we should be very proud of and have been very successful uh, for us uh, for the last, at least the last 70 years. Um, and secondly, I would say connectivity um, and making sure that we remain, uh, we're an incredibly connected country, both uh, um, physically um, and metaphorically. Uh, in terms of our alliances and partnerships all the way around the world uh, across a, a huge multitude of different topic areas. I think in many senses, we are unique uh, in our sort of connectivity uh, across centres. So I would say, broadly speaking, uh, those two things and using our connectivity uh, to help uh, promote our values, which we know are values which are, which are not selfish values. I mean, they've served Britain very well, but we know that their values uh, that increase and improve prosperity uh, and peace around the world, uh, um, trade interaction, uh, um, um, democracy. We know that those are things that uh, um, uh, have been very successful for us and for other countries. So I would say working those two things uh, um, together and facing down um, challenges, uh, wherever they may come from, uh, are people who um, uh, question some of those things. Okay, we won't always be able to face down everybody at the same time, uh, but I think we should be uh, confident of our values and confident uh, to say to others uh, when they're doing things or saying things that don't meet our values. And do you think, just just to think about our very current circumstances, do you think there are instances where that's going to be arising for us in relation to coronavirus and the sort of global coordination 
um, challenges which are going to come when you know hopefully we get a vaccine um, and, and wanting to think yeah. about how to how to project our values as well as do the best thing for the UK. Well, I think that's right. And actually, what we've seen with the virus has been um, challenges sometimes thrown up from unlikely places uh, in relation to trade. Uh, um, Liz Truss, our Secretary of State, has been absolutely on the front foot, uh, for example, of the G20 trade ministers all the way back in April, I think it was, uh, arguing against uh, new trade restrictions uh, put up in the name of the virus. And those might have been restrictions on PPE or medicines, uh, often from some of our you know, most like-minded partners uh, um, and making sure that uh, uh, the UK is true to our values uh, during the uh, the pandemic crisis, which is, uh, uh, you know, th there may be some role for, for, for onshoring in places or making sure at least that you have the capability uh, to be able to produce some of these vital goods uh, that you need for combating the crisis. But in general, the solution for us and for everybody else around the world is uh, trade diversification. We need more trade, not less trade uh, in a lot of these areas. So I think the virus has actually uh, brought a lot of our existing agenda uh, more into focus, actually, uh, um, particularly in terms of free trade and international cooperation. And a, a linked question we have uh, has come in from Nick Reed, who asks, um, to what extent is the life science sector a priority within the UK's current trade talks? Yeah, well, it's huge, a huge priority. Um, you know, we are an absolute global leader in life sciences. We've got some of the best life sciences clusters uh, uh, anywhere in the world. Uh, I know Imperial College, uh, from uh, hearing from Ian earlier, uh, London is a huge centre for us, uh, Cambridge, Oxford, uh, Edinburgh, uh, Cardiff, other parts of the UK, uh, very, very important, and doing whatever we can uh, to facilitate uh, life sciences uh, exchanges, uh, whether they be removing uh, regulatory barriers, uh, um, mutual recognition of each other's systems, uh, making sure that uh, professional people can move around the world in the life sciences sector, absolutely vital. For example, on the investment side, the UK has to continue to remain a very attractive place uh, for people to invest in life sciences. Um, so life sciences is, in short, a very important part of our trade agenda. I don't know if you want to come in there, Ian. Um, does that capture the sorts of priorities there are um, from, from Imperial's point of view in terms of the life science sector? Yes, uh, absolutely. I, I think what one has seen during COVID is the ability of a research and innovation base uh, across UK uh, institutions to really step up to the challenges uh, across the board, both in, in in forming policy and in developing things like vaccines, and I, I think the the strong investments that the UK has made in that have given it an important base on which it can rapidly spring into action and be very influential. Connections across the world are absolutely vital in that, uh, uh, and both bilateral and multilateral networks will continue to be really important. But, but I think the UK is well, well positioned to continue that primacy in, in life sciences. Can I just go back to a question that, um, that Georgie raised, uh, which was right at the end of her remarks. And, and this is a question now from, um, from Beth Thompson of welcome uh, to the minister again. Um, Georgie was talking about how important it is not just to have good ideas, but to think about how you 
about those ideas and and what are the, what do you think the priorities should be in terms of how the how the government um goes about presenting its 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 ideas um about the sort of the concept of global britain um or its its you know research priorities or you know its um the things it is it's trying to achieve its international uh engagement uh yeah well well uh, thank you um I think the answer, if I if I understood the question, I may not have got the complete subtlety in the question, but I uh, I, I think the answer, and it goes back to what George was saying about complacency. You know, in the UK, the easiest thing to be would be to say, look, we're at the centre of everything. We're a member of every global organisation there is going, and um, we are have fantastic, innovative uh, businesses and a very discerning consumer base. Therefore, everything's fine. Um, and we cannot, for any moment, uh, be uh, uh, complacent. Um, and uh, being able to engage uh, UK ideas um, moving forward across a whole wide variety of agenda items. And next year at uh, COP26 uh, on climate change, on trade, uh, through independent membership of the World Trade Organization, I'm really looking forward to us um, taking uh, key parts of the UK trade agenda and seeing whether we can and be the, the the leaders at the WTO in, in terms of things like uh, trade and services, uh, which has been stalled at the World Trade Organization, uh, and on the development side, uh, A, leading by example, but B, uh, making sure that uh, our development agenda moves into the next phase, uh, which is really to raise prosperity uh, in developing countries. Uh, um, that is, I, I see all of these areas as being absolutely vital for the UK and uh, and we, we mustn't be complacent uh, uh, for one moment. Uh, just because we're well situated today, uh, we need to make sure that we fight to maintain that position uh, and also make sure that others uh, uh, remain open to our agenda. I think that's a really interesting point. And I, um, at the Institute, we were facilitating some, some roundtables that Welcome were, uh, were running recently, where we were looking at exactly this, this question of how the UK can, can facilitate um, networks across developing countries um, to enable them, you know, for it not to just be a binary relationship between the UK and those countries, but in order to, to, um, to, to promote effective research um, and, as you say, increase the prosperity of those countries, how we can be a facilitator of networks um, across the um, global south. Uh, absolutely. Um, and um, again, it's uh, leveraging off our diplomatic network. I think, by the way, I think there's an awful lot um, that we can learn from others as well. You know, I think one of the things that um, governance in general in the UK has not been so strong on, uh, really, for the ever since I've been involved in politics the last 20 years, has been uh, um, learning from, from what other countries are doing uh, in this space. So, um, I don't think we study, for example, enough of what um, other Western countries are doing in their approaches um, to these problems. You know, it's um, it's something picking up. Uh, I was just the weekend. I was reading the the, the German government's uh, uh, latest document in terms of their development agenda. Um, you know, actually, that's a really interesting thing. Sort of seeing, okay, you see huge um, areas of uh, common approach, um, but some of those differences, you can always innovate. Uh, and government, we need to be more innovative, particularly learning from international examples. Stephen, can I come back to you and just uh, put the, the the previous question that I, I put to the minister, which was about what you think the priorities should be for the government in terms of how it the how how it talks about its ideas, how it presents itself now on the global stage. 
Yeah, well, I mean, I would make two observations. I mean, one is it's clearly right that the UK needs to focus on how it communicates externally, in, in part because um, the, the, one of the effects of having an autonomous trade policy is that we'll be talking for ourselves, speaking for ourselves in a way that we weren't necessarily um, or haven't necessarily been doing uh, for the past three decades. Um, and partly that's going to be about our negotiating style. We're going to have to develop a um, a, a, a British approach, and we are, of course, in the process of developing a British approach to the negotiation of trade agreements. But I think, in fact, much more important are the thousands and thousands of dialogues that we're going to build up with policymakers, regulators, financial market supervisors um, in the jurisdictions that matter to us around the world, where what we're going to be trying to do is to shape their approach to the evolution of regulation, to shape the way they think about liberalization, if we're, if we're dealing with the emerging economies and, and developing countries. And their tone is really going to matter. Of course, it's going to be a question of UK's great strengths. SP, one of our great strengths is that we do have a long tradition of smart regulation. We also need to develop the ability to talk honestly about areas where we've got things wrong and what we've learned, because it's those kind of dialogues with our regulatory counterparts around the world um, that will ultimately be the way in which we shape agendas and we shape outcomes over the years ahead. I think there's maybe there's one other communications challenge, which is important, which is how we talk to ourselves about global Britain. And we, we haven't actually said anything about that yet, but I think we, we tend to talk about global Britain as something that we do out there with other people. But actually, to my mind, the one big missing piece of the Global Britain agenda, and it's now starting to emerge in a slightly ad hoc way, is how we talk to ourselves about what it means to be a global country. Um, and um, fundamentally, that doesn't involve talking with anyone outside the UK. What it means is talking to ourselves about what our approach to imports are going to be. Imports are ultimately our capabilities. Uh, when it comes to building our export base or our knowledge economy, whether that's the import of goods or ideas or people or the people who have ideas in their heads. And um, we, we have only just, I think, entered the foothills of having a discussion about what the UK's global supply chains look like, how the UK feeds itself, where the UK pulls intermediate goods in from. And that, of course, relates to things like food standards. And in, until we've until we truly understand and we have a better picture of what the UK's global supply chains look like, it's very difficult to then make a lot of important decisions about where we should set the UK global tariff or how much money we should be putting against innovation in the custom system or what our migration system should look like. So I think there's a whole range of, I mean, I'm slightly stretching the communication question, but I think there's a, there's a really important point here, which is it's not just about how we talk to the rest of the world. It's about the discussion we have in our own politics about the way the UK is going to function as an economy dependent on the rest of the world for goods, services, ideas, because that's what Global Britain ultimately means to me. That's a really interesting point. Can I put that that point to you, uh, Professor Wormsley? The question both about how we should be communicating externally, but really interestingly, how we should communicate internally and, and have this debate um, about um, you know, what Global Britain really means within the UK. Mm. Yeah, well, for for us, I suppose, that that concept really stems around ideas and people. Uh, we're not dealing with commodities, as it were, uh, but we are dealing with with 
how you bring the best qualified and, and most able people to the country and how we exchange them around the world. And, and I think that uh, I, I take uh, Stephen's point that there's an internal message there that it's about building opportunities for people in the UK. But part of that is going to be connecting them to others around the world to share perspectives because it's that crucible where you, where you get the best ideas. And that will, will also require the dialogues that Greg talked about around um, and Stephen talked about around um, not, not regulations and liberalization in this case, but really around what are the multilateral networks that you really need for influence. Uh, part of that, I think, is people come to the UK, they work here for a while, they go back out to the countries they, they came from or perhaps elsewhere um, and build on that connection. I think uh, over over a long period of time, especially if they're taking leading ideas and bringing leading ideas here, that's the place in which we can build a long-term influence. Georgie, can I ask the same question to you? Um, in terms of the how of government, which is something we think about a lot in terms of um, the Institute, how should, how should government go about having this conversation? I mean, it's, it's a really difficult one, and it's not something that's just cropped up over the past four years. I mean, I think, you know, we're talking about effective communication. Um, one of the things that the government's going to have to get right also is obviously explaining where it has delivered um, on its vision and promise, but also when it has not been able to deliver on its vision and promise. Because if the government, unless the government kind of takes hold of that narrative um, and, you know, promotes an, a kind of conversation around that, others will do it for it. Um, so I think we need to be very clear on a, our priorities um, and what we'd like to achieve, but also what we haven't been able to achieve through our trade agreements or, or broader foreign policy discussions that we're having within international organisations. Um, and I mean, you know, just to pick up on some of the other things that were said, when we're thinking about new partnerships with um, allies across the world, then I think we need to be thinking about fair partnerships. So rather than, you know, approaching the country and saying, this is what we'd like to do, are you in or out, really kind of Kind of identifying joint priorities and then developing a plan for action together um, and that can be as ambitious um, as we want I mean you know we have a new incoming US administration possibly um, you know obviously that the, with the uh, election um, taking place in November you know whether uh, President Trump is re-elected or whether we have a Biden president we need to have an agenda towards the US we need to know what our priorities are and go come to them with with a clear sense of, of what we'd like to achieve um, and then finally coming back to tone I mean tone matters hugely here in the UK being clear on, on what government's trying to achieve um, but also um, striking the right tone abroad, being aware, you know, Minister said, being aware of what priorities other countries have, um, where international uh, organisations are going, you know, what are the big stumbling blocks, what could the UK, what constructive role could the UK play? And I think, you know, communication is going to be key. And if, if that's one of the opportunities for Brexit, I really hope that's one that we'll see. Um, come forward first and um, in, in having a government that is really able to tackle that foreign policy debate in an um, inclusive but also constructive manner. I'd like to give um, you, Minister, a chance to come back on some of those really interesting points um, and just tell us what the government has in mind in terms of, of facilitating, particularly the, the point that Stephen was making about this internal conversation about uh, within the UK about what global Britain should mean. Yeah, well, I, I think you're right in terms of the uh, the domestic communication. Um, you know, where is uh, Britain heading on the international stage? I think is incredibly important for us uh, to make sure that we maintain 
uh, um, domestic support and uh, particularly um, to the vision that, that I and I think the Prime Minister has of, uh, of where global Britain is heading, which is being open to the world, um, connectivity, um, influence, um, our broadly speaking, our liberal values um, going forward. That is the exactly the thing which we need to um, get across uh, um, domestically um, across uh, the UK um, in, in all nations and all regions. I think in terms of a, a few of the other points, um, I think Georgina's points of being aware of others' priorities and building partnerships, absolutely. Um, the UK is not in the business of um, going around the world uh, um, trying to dictate. You know, we, we are looking to uh, build a consensus, push people in the uh, in, in, in the right direction, uh, if you like, nudge countries, uh, for want of a better term, uh, which I know the IFG will, 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 will enjoy. Um, I think in terms of um, where we take um, trade policy, um, I think you can see where we set, um, uh, uh, somebody mentioned, might have been Stephen, the UK Global Tariff, which is something that we launched earlier this year and uh, I think was deserving of a bit more attention than it got um, because the UK Global Tariff, um, uh, A, was a trade liberalising thing, uh, B, it's a trade greening, so we reduced, uh, removed uh, tariffs on a lot of uh, green goods, uh, and also simplified uh, matters, so uh, making sure that um, trade can be uh, more easily understood and more easily digested. Um, so I think that uh, um, um, was something which uh, which which uh, I'm glad. So I think it was Stephen who raised the UK global tariff. So I think um, uh, corruption. I think Georgina raised as well, which of course uh, we haven't really um, spoken. It's not really a, an issue much discussed in the last year or two, but I think it's a massive influence. Uh, on business and the UK has got a really proud record uh, dating all the way back when, from when I was first in Parliament with the Bribery Act uh, under actually under the previous Labour government. So I think there's a lot of good work there. David Cameron was a, a very, very keen on uh, on taking action on corruption. One of the last things he did as Prime Minister was hold in Number 10 Downing Street a big anti-corruption summit. So I think the UK's uh, front-footed effort on uh, combating corruption in the world. I think that's, again, uh, an area that we could be very proud of um, and take um, further. So I think, you know, all of these are, are great ideas. Um, there's an old adage that not everything could be a priority because suddenly nothing becomes a priority. But there's no shortage of um, uh, good messages and good ideas the UK is going to be taking around the world as part of global Britain. And I think that's, that's a, a, a very uh, good point. And uh, the, another thing the Institute is always banging on about is the important, uh, importance for government prioritising. Um, we've had a couple of questions come in uh, from viewers about um, the local impact of, of Global Britain. And I, if I could just put these um, to you, to you, Minister. Um, one from Rebecca um, Naden and one from Juan Onzola, that, who are asking, how can they make sure, how can the government make sure that global Britain um, has a positive impact on socio-economic conditions in the UK as a whole, and how can we ensure that the north of England um, and of course, indeed all, all the regions of, of, of the UK, um, not just the south, feel that they have a voice when it comes to defining um, and um, un an understanding what global Britain is going to be? Yeah, well, that is a really good question. Um, and I think if you look at uh, our trade agenda, the levelling up agenda links in quite well to our trade agenda. Um, the scoping assessment for a, a lot of our first round of trade deals actually shows um, that the nations and regions of the UK are benefiting more than London and the South East, which might 
uh, be a little bit contrary to what some people might think. Actually, the U.S. scoping analysis uh, um, showed that actually London would be the region of the U.K. that would still benefit, but would actually benefit less compared to um, others. In fact, Scotland benefited the most, um, followed by um, the, the Midlands, followed by uh, the northeast of England. So using our trade agenda uh, and actually uh, um, showing that uh, trade will, will particularly benefit other parts of the UK, I think that is uh, going to be a, a key part of, of that agenda from, from, from our point of view of the Department of International Trade. And can I um, put the question um, to um, the same question to um, Professor Wormsley? Mm. Yeah, the, uh, I think there is a great opportunity for us to build not just global networks, but internal networks. And, and the notion that the sort of golden triangle institutions can play a bigger role in connecting and partnering with institutions elsewhere, I think is a, a really viable one. There are things that we are certainly, I think, it is for Imperial, for example, it's probably true to say that our reputation is greater in Southeast Asia than it is in the north of England. I think that's something that we need to pay attention to because that allows us to provide opportunities for for students and from that region and indeed for, for companies that we may spin out or, or partner with. Uh, in that part of the region, to in that part of the country, to to uh, benefit. So, I think it's an opportunity for us to to build internal UK networks to to, to help with that part of the agenda. Uh, Stephen, can I come back to you? A slightly different version of the same question, but you, you've got a lot of international experience of how other countries go about shaping their sort of agenda in terms of particularly trade, but also sort of more more broadly in terms of foreign policy. What, can you point to any really good examples of how countries have managed to sort of have to bring uh, the country together um, to find um, its sort of external identity in this way? Well, it's a really difficult thing to do. Um, and actually, I think in many ways, the larger the, the market, and particularly if you're dealing, say, with jurisdictions like the, the US or the EU, where you have a you have a federal level that is doing the negotiating and in many cases setting the priorities and then quite a complex landscape both politically and economically underneath that it can be very difficult to craft a trade policy or i mean an international economic commercial policy that's, that's genuinely got the buy-in and the legitimacy of every level of the, the system and you often you often see that in free trade agreements where the toughest negotiations are in fact often the negotiations over your shoulder uh, with the provincial level governments or the state level governments um, in you know uh, who, who are a layer down in terms of governance and the UK actually needs to obviously anticipate that in its own trade and international economic policy um, you know we, we we haven't answered the question of how we're going to bring the devolved administrations uh, into the process of making international economic policy or trade policy so I think you know th th there are there are there are perennial challenges to making international economic policy when you've got those layers of government. Um, and it's no, I don't think it's any any coincidence then that some of the most consistent and often coherent actors in international trade policy are smaller jurisdictions, the Singapore's, uh, you know, who, who are managing in some ways just a, a less messy stakeholder landscape. Um, I, don't, I don't think, I think there are there are, there are things we can identify as good. You know, I think the Australians and the New Zealanders are quite good at managing their stakeholder management and their civil society dialogue. I think the, the EU does that, you know, 
does, does that comparatively poorly in, in comparison. Um, and, you know, the, the Canadians are, and the Americans, I think, both have relatively sophisticated ways of bringing commercial interests uh, into the process of building and mapping priorities for trade policy. So, you know, we can definitely, and, and I mean, the EU, I think, is arguably fairly good at that as well, probably better on the business side than on civil society. So I mean, I think there are there are certainly examples we can learn from. I don't think anybody does everything perfectly. Um, I think that it's going to be a question of us working out what others do well. But then absolutely crucially, just remembering that, you know, idiosyncrasy is the name of the game here. The, the UK is not like anywhere else, just like nowhere else is like the UK. And the, the solutions that we come up with are going to be solutions customized for the unique political economy uh, of, of the UK. And, you know, needless to say, in the last couple of months, and indeed the last four years, we've learned something really important about the political economy of the UK, which is that leaving the EU is going to really force us to confront how we manage things like international trade policy across the four component parts of the UK. And we, again, uh, we are only at the start of working out how to do that. Can I get back to you, Minister, and just ask on that specific point that, that Stephen Adams has made there, what the what are the sort of structures and processes that the Department for International Trade is is putting in place to make sure that it's fully informed about these different sort of views from different stakeholders and and can build those into its thinking? Yeah, uh, well, thanks. I mean, on on various levels, that has been uh, a key part of the development of the Inter Department for International Trade in the last twelve months has been um developing our stakeholder engagement just parking let's just, let me just take the devolved administration separately first of all um you know we have to be very careful um and trade policy is a reserve matter um for the uk government but equally um large aspects of what happens to trade policy uh, on the ground are in devolved matters so um, agriculture being a, a very prominent one um, but also in other areas as well are essentially uh, uh, devolved in the UK. So we have to uh, get that balance right between we are negotiating on behalf of the whole the whole of the UK. It's a reserve matter, uh, but equally our trade partners. It is in, it's in our national interest, actually, for all of the devolved administrations to feel comfortable with this, because, you know, not only do we <clears throat> have to uh, um, act for their interests. So um, earlier this morning, I was doing a a fringe with the Scotch Whiskey Association. You know, uh, trade policy is a reserve matter, uh, although obviously jobs and the Scotch whiskey industry is obviously overwhelmingly based in Scotland. There's uh, the Irish whiskey industry in Northern Ireland. Um, um, and then the UK negotiates on their behalf. But equally, we've got to make sure that, A, the devolved administrations have got a say. We need to hear from uh, um, businesses and consumers in the devolved administrations about what their priorities are. And our trade partners need to have confidence that whatever we agree uh, will also be valid uh, for the devolved administrations, which uh, is also one of the reasons the UK Internal Markets Bill being there was well, not principally about trade, but it's also very important for others to be able to know that when they negotiate with the UK government, um, that we are negotiating fully on behalf of all four nations uh, of the UK. So in that in mind, I've set up the Ministerial Forum for Trade. So uh, quarterly, I meet with the uh, the relevant ministers in the three devolved administrations. Uh, I have regular meetings, I think, just with the Ivan McKee, the Scottish Trade Minister, I think five or six times um, since I rejoined the department in February. Baroness Morgan in Wales, Diane Dodds in Northern Ireland. We meet both as a four uh, and uh, bilaterally very, very often. I give them regular updates. 
I think in terms of broader stakeholders, we've set up um, our strategic trade advisory group, uh, which is a, a relatively small group uh, of real sort of trade experts. And then we have our different sectoral advisory groups as well, advising on uh, particular uh, aspects, whether it be technology, whether it be um, agriculture. And we also have the Trade and Agriculture Commission uh, as well. Um, so we've got a like a whole um, a, a whole um, ecosystem, if you like, uh, of consultation bodies and stakeholder groups as well, um, feeding in to the UK trade agenda. And that's exactly as it should be, because we need to hear. I mean, I think I was saying earlier that trade policy, you can get sort of lost in, in a whole world of, um, of jargon and negotiations and tariff rate quotas here for a bit of regulatory alignment there. And you know, if you don't hear from businesses and consumers as to what what works for, for businesses exporting uh, and what UK consumers want to have, um, then um, you know you could be lost in a theoretical world forever. You know we, we've got to work in trade is an immensely practical thing, or should be an immensely practical thing, uh, to bring prosperity and benefit uh, um, uh, across all four nations of the UK. You mentioned the um, the importance of, of other countries having confidence that that the UK government speaks for the, the devolved um, uh, nations when it's at the negotiating table, and and of course the uh, you mentioned the. In, Internal Markets Bill. In that context, there's a there's a slightly uh, punchier question from from Juan Anzola, who asks how the UK uh, government can build confidence of other countries um, about the UK as a negotiating partner, given um, the approach that the, the government's decided to take with the Internal Markets Bill, where it has decided that that some of the now, aspects of withdrawal agreement um, that it entered into with the with the EU, it, it may need to disapply. Well, well, look, I mean, uh, the Internal Markets Bill is not uh, a DIT piece of legislation. Uh, and I'm sure we've heard from uh, um, uh, Michael Gove and Alok Sharma, uh, who lead on the Internal Markets Bill, um, the reason uh, for that part of the UK Internal Markets Bill is hopefully something which will, will, will never happen. You know, we're, we're hoping and confident of getting an agreement with the European Union. Um, as Michael Gover said, the the need to have um, that aspect in the bill uh, um, uh, was driven in part by comments made by the European Union at the negotiating table uh, in relation to uh, goods and particularly food being able to pass from Great Britain to Northern Ireland. So let's hope that we never get to that point. Uh, and I personally remain... Uh, an optimist um, that uh, that uh, we will get a deal with the European Union because I think it's strongly in both sides' interest to do that. We've had a whole cluster of questions about specific different sort of trading relationships and, and blocks that the UK may or may not be interested in joining. So I don't know if I can I can draw you on. Fire away, yeah. <laughs> so um, a question about the extent to which um, we might want to, to, to work with the Commonwealth as a block. Um, a question about whether um, the, the UK should enter into some kind of union with, with Canada, Australia and New Zealand um, to, to create a sort of alternative um, centre of, of, of gravity. Um, and also one um, about sort of what the objectives might be. Is there a way of working with others to, to tilt Africa away from China? Um, is yeah. it coming? So could, could you comment on some of those sort of um, propositions? Uh, yeah, well, well, thank you. Um, and I think there's, some, there's a lot in all those questions. I think uh, on the Commonwealth, um, I don't think the Commonwealth really lends itself well to a to a Commonwealth uh, free trade agreement. I mean, that's my 
been my view the last uh, um, four years. You're talking about a set of countries at very, very different stages of development. Um, I think the Commonwealth, we, we did do a very successful Commonwealth Trade Ministers meeting uh, a couple of years ago, and that was a good forum for discussing and improving uh, um, the overall free trade agenda. I'm not convinced that the Commonwealth is really uh, um, set up to be a trade agreement, uh, having said that. Uh, on the Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and the UK, Kansuk is often called, look, that, that is what's being done um, through the CPTPP. Uh, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand are all members of the CPTPP. Um, we are uh, hoping to join CPTPP with negotiations starting, I would expect, uh, next year, um, amongst other countries. Uh, Japan is also a leading member of that, uh, as well as um, important economies in Southeast Asia, uh, like uh, Vietnam, like Singapore, uh, and also in Latin America, like Mexico, um, Peru, and uh, Colombia. Um, so that is an important trade agreement that I think Kanzuk uh, uh, as such would be uh, would be part of, would be covered uh, um, by CP and TPP. And then I think the final part on Africa, look, um, uh, you know, I, I, uh, we have to recognize kind of some of our limitations. I think kind of in any way sort of seeking to replace China in Africa. Um, I mean, let's be realistic here. Um, I think what we do need to do is to make sure that we are of more influence in Africa. Um, we have been opening embassies in Africa the last um, 10 years or so. Um, when I've traveled in Africa quite a lot, so partly in this job and, 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 and independently, and I'm always struck by um, the diplomatic footprints. And when you come in from an airport and you'll see some huge new shining Chinese embassy building uh, and others, um, and the UK has got to catch back up there in terms of where our diplomatic footprint is. Uh, sometimes this will be working with partners. And I do think we can work um, closely with some of our European partners. We can actually do a lot with countries like Turkey. I mean, Turkey's got, um, I think, the now the second largest diplomatic network in Africa. Uh, um, um, Istanbul as an airport is incredibly well connected to Africa. Turkey's got real capabilities in infrastructure building. I think the UK can partner um, with uh, Turkey in terms of what we're doing in Africa on infrastructure. I use that as one example of, uh, of something where, you know, actually we can then evolve an offer which you know, could actually present an alternative consortium to say so, to, to what China might be offering. The UK might not be able to, might not be able to offer everything, but with a combination of, say, UK export finance, UK project management capability, uh, and other capabilities put in by other countries, then I think there's uh, a halfway decent chance the UK will be able to win uh, some of those big infrastructure uh, contracts. And then just, you know, our continuing to spend 0.7% of GNI on international development, uh, I think will will make sure that our Africa footprint remains strong. Uh, we just need to tilt it a little bit more into uh, raising prosperity in Africa uh, and trade, I think, will be a big part of that. Thank you. Um, Professor Walsley, can I come back to you? Do you think that, um, particularly on the Africa point, that research collaboration can be an important aspect of um, how the UK builds um, its sort of um, its, its uh, weight within Africa and, and maybe helps sort of counteract the, the, the Chinese influence there? Yeah, absolutely. I think the uh, the links that are being built and uh, will continue to be built 
in providing uh, enhanced scientific and knowledge capability are clearly going to be ways in which we can can drive influence there. And, and I think in the long term, those will be uh, e- extremely valuable, um, as, as valuable, I would posit, as, as infrastructure investments. But, uh, but, but those will take time. I think the, the things that are, the UK is already in a good position there, the, the work that um, Wellcome Trust supports, for example, in, in its um, uh, global health programs is important. I think the work that, that we have now through the Global Challenges Research Fund helps to establish those links in a really important and valuable way. So, so absolutely, those are going to be, going to be something, that, a strength that we can build on. Thank you. Stephen, can I come back to you just on the, the earlier questions that I was asking the minister about sort of different uh, trading blocks and priorities for the UK in terms of, of, of where it ought to be? Because as, as the minister rightly said earlier on, we can't prioritise everything. Where, what are the um, collaborations that the UK ought to be prioritising? Well, I mean, I, I think the, a very practical answer is that the first thing you've got to focus on is continuity. And that, that means focusing on areas where UK exporters are currently benefiting from preferential access and rolling that over for uh, the UK outside of the EU. So the, the EU deal is a, is a version of that. Um, Korea, Japan, Canada, Switzerland, Turkey, which is, of course, a particularly knotty problem because of its relationship to the to the EU agreement. So that, that needs to be the priority. I think then beyond that, uh, you know, the, the reality is that if we're talking about free trade agreements, most of the benefits for the UK are going to be at the margin. Um, and that, that doesn't mean these deals are not worth pursuing, but we need to weigh, of course, uh, you know, we need to weigh that relatively marginal benefit for the UK economy against the opportunity cost of focusing on other things. So, I mean, I, my, my sense is that actually the main thing we have to do is we have to focus on areas where we get uh, the maximum trickle-down benefits. And those will chiefly come, I think, in the areas of regulatory diplomacy. So the work that we do shaping the way um, the FSB uh, works on financial services regulation, the work we do at the ISO shaping the future of key areas of technology regulation, whether it's the regulation of cross-border payment systems or the protocols for driverless cars or the way AI is regulated, you know, you, you name it. I think there's a, there's a potential big multiplier effect of high quality UK engagement on those kinds of commercial questions, potentially impact that goes beyond the kind of slightly more narrow impacts of trade agreements with countries uh, a, a long way away. So, I mean, I, I think but as I said, um, I also think that the real UK priority needs to be to understand better what our own global supply chains look like. We we are only we have only the most rudimentary rudimentary sense of what we mean when we say the UK is embedded in global supply chains for goods, services, and people. And we we can't really make intelligent policy, um, including unilateral policy, like the setting of the UK global tariff, or understanding why it is the West Midlands benefits from a free trade agreement. I mean, we, we have an intuition about the answers, but until we really know what it means to say the UK is a globalized economy better than we do now, it will be hard to make policy well. So I would I would make that a priority. I think that, you know, understanding ourselves as a globalized country, statistically, politically, uh, is actually a real priority. And that seems like a, a very good um, uh, call on which to end this event. Um, my 
very great thanks to um, all our panelists um, for, for participating. Um, and thanks to you all for listening. Thanks again to Imperial College and to Wellcome Trust for kindly supporting our event today. And um, thank you, as I said, for joining us. You can, if you want to watch the event uh, again or recommend it to anyone else, it will avail be available on the, UK, on the Institute's uh, website and podcast feed. Um, and please do join us for our next event, which is at 12.30, and that's on harnessing technology, transforming services. How can the government make the most of the digital revolution?